Wait, you didn't do the hula part. <laughs> you ruined it. What is? You ruined it. How does it go? Sing it, sing it, sing it. Uh, it's like that. <laughs> and then I, I'll come in with, where is yeah. my mind? Yeah, that's fine. And then it's just like a, a zoom out shot <laughs> of Edward Norton. <laughs> with your feet on the air. Your head on the ground. It's like that. Uh, hello. Hi. And welcome to How Did This Get Praised? The movie podcast that you discovered at a very strange time in your life. Hey, see what you did there. Roll <laughs> credits, ding. Uh, I'm Daniela Mazio, and I'm here with my co-host, his fight club name is Dyler Turden. It's Stefan Carlson. Yay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here again. It's like it's like we're together on this show. Like a couple? Yeah. Are we like if you could compare us to a couple, would you say we have homoerotic undertones like the mm-hmm. narrator and Tyler Durden? Mm-hmm. Would you say that like we 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 fuck hard like <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter and 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 Brad Pitt? Or would you say that we're a Ross and Rachel situation, just completely different IP? That's from around the same time, though. So I feel like that could easily apply. Yeah. And, you know, you got Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're actually Marla. And if Marla was actually two people. Wait, which one of us is a spoilers, first of all? Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. Spoilers. The 31 year old movie. Uh, which one of us is. Uh, is is main marla and which one of us is like cool marla <laughs> mean marla did you say main main, main like marla. central marla oh i think my, main marla is cool marla so wh- who's lame marla <laughs> lame marla <laughs> lame marla's just the narrator yeah okay so we're that we're them we're those yeah. two <laughs> okay well i'm glad we got that out of the I way i want to see fight club film through marla's perspective <laughs> But the twist is that it turns out that she's actually the narrator who thinks that he (laughs) and Tyler are the same person. Wait, so would that mean that she thinks she's... Wait, she is the narrator, but Mm. Tyler is not the narrator? Um, She's the narrator. The narrator is Tyler, so she is Tyler. It's a transitive property. So wait, she's all three? Yeah. I think that's the real twist. Wow. What if what if it cut to at the end, it just cut for a second to Marla holding hands with no one. <laughs> they did like literally the exact same thing they did earlier where you realize that it's like Tyler is the narrator. Yeah, it's the and reveal they do montage. It all over again. <laughs> <laughs> <That'd be laughs> where so is my mind? <laughs> Where is my mind? Uh, oh my God. Well, <laughs> before we get started on this movie, yeah. uh, a little bit about the show. How did this get praised? We said it once, we'll say it again. Don't sue us. Uh, if you are a film lover of any sort, uh, you're probably familiar with the quote-unquote canon, you know, the movies that really annoying people tell you you have to see, and that's usually because they don't have a personality. Uh, these movies that were, like, considered to be greats for one reason or another. Maybe they're a cult classic, maybe they were a financial success, maybe they won some Academy Awards. We started asking, 
why do these movies get praised? So throughout each episode, we're going to take one beloved movie, whether it is a financial success, critical success, cult favorite, or any film with a legacy, essentially. And we're going to talk about two things. One, why we think the movie got praised. And two, is it actually any good? Because after all, who are we going to let decide what's good? Two cool as hell best friends who met each other in high school film class, or two people who are actually one person, but it's the dichotomy of man or something. If you've ever loved a movie despite feeling like it wasn't made for you, or hated a movie that you were told is made for everyone, this is the podcast for you. Now that we've kind of gotten that housekeeping out of the way, let's jump in and start to talk about this episode's film. Stefan, what film are we talking about? We're talking about 1999, uh, David Fincher's now cult classic film, Fight Club. Um, And if you haven't heard of Fight Club or haven't seen it like I had before recording this episode, um, Fight Club is about a man who is kind of disillusioned with society, disillusioned with his job. He flies all over the country. He sort of sees himself in his possessions. He then meets uh, Tyler Durden on a flight. Tyler Durden, who is played by Brad Pitt, is this uh, jet-setting kind of fuck-everything dude who thinks that uh, people should just kind of go back to their base instincts and that men are pussies nowadays, pretty much. And it's about uh, what happens when they start a fight club and the, the hijinks and hilarity. And it's, <laughs> the hijinks it's a, a feel-good family movie. It is a feel-good family movie. Um, so that, yes, we're talking about 1999's Fight Club. This movie is now over, oh my God, it's over, it's I 20. said 31. It's you 21 years old. We'll fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. Um, before we jump in, I know we've got a lot to say about Fight Club. And I think a lot, if, you, if you've listened to our previous episode on Joker, I think there's going to be a little bit of overlap, especially when it comes to quote-unquote society. What? <laughs> Men impacted by violence who need therapy. <laughs> uh, I have a feeling a lot of the movies we talk about are going to be about men who ultimately just need therapy. Probably. <laughs> uh, but, you know, first of all, let's talk about ourselves and mm-hmm. uh, for our own little bit of therapy. What's up, Stefan? How are you doing? I've been pretty good, actually these past few blahs don't want to say for production reason, but <laughs> these past few insert unit of time here since we last recorded, um, it's been pretty good. Um, I feel feeling at peace with things, um, which I haven't been the last few months because of the, the horrible raging pandemic outside, but I, it's, it's getting better. I mean, it's not getting better, but I feel like I'm handling it better. You're getting better. Yeah. That's important. It's important that you're getting better. How can the world get better if you yourself are not getting better? That's true. Very fair. Um, well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, how, are, how are you doing? I am. Uh, I'm actually doing quite well. I, <laughs> I, I hope I don't ruin your uh, vague unit of time. But my, uh, my birthday is tomorrow um at the time of this recording so i'm turning a, a cool 25 um and do, so, do you want everyone to sing to you <laughs> no should i should i lead everyone in a rousing <laughs> birthday song yeah uh only if uh where is my happy yeah, birthday to you 
so yeah, I've had a very nice, I've had a very nice weekend. I am taking a little extra time off work to enjoy a long weekend. I have been watching many movies. Uh, I've been doing an at-home film festival because I miss going to the movies so badly. Yeah. You told me that, that you missed like the, the agency and self-love of taking yourself on a date to the movies? Yeah, I think there's something, I mean, one, I, as a kind of film snob, I think part of it is like getting to sit with my feelings about a movie without one, having to share those feelings or two, having to possibly like defend them or talk Mm -hmm. to people. Sometimes I've definitely been to the movies with people who don't care. And like, they're like, okay, the movie's done. What's the next thing we're doing? And I, I can't stand that. Interesting. <laughs> I, I need someone who wants to talk about it, but most of, usually I just want to like sit in it. Um, and so I really like taking myself to the movies. I love going to the movies. I'm very concerned as much as you can be about something that ultimately doesn't matter um, <laughs> about the state of the movie theater industry right now. Um, Cause I just, I think movie going to the movies is very wonderful. So I've been trying to recreate that at home uh, mainly by cranking my AC up and turning the lights off mm. and um, getting mad if uh, my boyfriend pulls his phone out. So. I know you should, you should ask <laughs> Joe to just like be on his phone or like talking <laughs> the whole time to recreate the experience. Uh, and then I can do what I would do in the real experience, which is say nothing, but just kind of go <sighs> <laughs> very loudly from my seat. I love it. Um, yeah, so that I, I've been doing the same thing. I've, I'm feeling better. I don't necessarily feel like the world is doing better, but I personally am coping with it more. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's good. That's good for us. We, we hope you're feeling better too, audience. We wanted to say, we were contemplating saying at the beginning of the episode that you all are lovely, unique, and individual snowflakes, and that we love you very much. So fuck uh. Tyler Durden. <laughs> Fuck the patriarchy. We're the antithesis of Tyler Durden, which is Pretty why much, yeah. you're you're Tyler Turden. Tyler Turden. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like one of those like um whenever uh they did Jeopardy on SNL and uh was it Burt like, like Turd a, Ferguson? Or Turd Ferguson, Sean Connery, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just fuck shit up. Um all right, so Fight Club. Yeah. So you had never seen this movie before. I had not. And, and I, I did be- not know the twist either. Which is good. That I was very excited about that. You were yeah. you were almost volunteering to do research for this movie ahead of our watch. And I was like, don't do that. <laughs> you are so pure. You were a pure special snowflake yeah. and you don't know what happens. Um, and now I believe you've seen it twice. I've seen it two and a half times. Two and a half times? I watched the first half right before we recorded this. Oh, shit. Okay, well, so tell me, what was your impression before you had seen Fight Club of the movie? Um, I didn't know much about it, to be fair. Um, Mm -hmm. I knew of David Fincher, Mm -hmm. who uh, made one of my favorite movies, uh, Gone Gone Girl. We love Gone Girl in this movie. Love Gone Girl. And um, I knew that it was a cult classic that it was a it was an essential guy movie. It was on like the must watch guy movies, basically. Would you consider yourself a guy's guy? Um no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even consider myself a guy, so like that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh 
what did you so what give us your like initial impression i mean walk us through each time each time and a half that you watch yeah. this movie um I, on my yeah. first watch i liked it okay mm-hmm. um i thought it was i thought it was really well done i i like the story i like the writing mm-hmm. the the acting is uh phenomenal from everyone pretty much um but as i sat with it for a couple weeks and i said at the end of watching it the first time that I wanted to watch it again before we recorded because I felt like there's a lot to process. I knew there was a lot to process here. So I felt mm-hmm. that was important. Then I, as I was waiting to watch it again, I just kept feeling this like queasy feeling about watching this again mm-hmm. and kind of this like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to watch that again. That was awful. <laughs> and I, I don't know why I felt that or what it was about the movie that made me feel that way. But I did end up watching it and it was like, I started it at like midnight um, right after we watched another movie. And I liked it much more than I thought I was going to on a second watch. Mm. Um, I feel like I appreciated it. Kind of the meaning sprinkled throughout the, the little character moments, the plot devices. I felt like I appreciated that much more. Mm. And then, yeah. And then in the third watch, it was pretty much just more of kind of, appreciating the nuances and what I think David Fincher was trying to say with the source material and the writing. Interesting. Well, uh, that's quite a journey, especially for someone who's not a guy's guy. (laughs) And uh, I'll be interested to think, uh, to unpack more of those, uh, what you actually think about this movie as you continue to process it. Um, I saw this movie for the first time in high school and I had actually, I had read the book first. I'm trying to remember now. I, I obviously, because I had read the book, I knew the twist before watching the movie. So the twist is in the book. The twist is in the book. I can't remember if I had also known it going into the book and if I just was kind of taking both and knowing that from the get-go or if the book was what it had revealed. I want to say the book had re- was the first time I had encountered like, oh, okay. And then the movie was like taking that in with the knowledge of what happens at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I got in the book from a uh, shout out to local independent bookstores, Myopic Books in Chicago. And uh, it was probably like 15 or 16. It's a really quick read. I have not read it since, but I remember really liking it. And then I like immediately saw the movie. I was really into the idea of David Fincher, but I actually don't think I had seen a David Fincher That's movie fair. at that point. I, I have done that before with um, many auteur directors. Yes. I was just like, uh, this is going to be cool. <laughs> like, and at the time I think I wanted to be a guy's guy. So that probably makes sense of mm-hmm. why I really wanted to delve into both the source material and the movie. And I liked both. I, don't think I had really complicated feelings. I think I very much took it all at face value and probably had a similar experience to what we might start to surmise audiences might have initially, which is just, this is really cool. This kind of blew my mind. I was at, on Tumblr at the time and a lot of people would share like out of context screen ca- like screenshots from the movie uh-huh. of like Helena Bottom Carter being edgy or something. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. God, I like she's, this. She's so good. Yeah, she's great. And so um, I think like I was very into the aesthetic of it. And then I had not revisited it again. I bought the Blu-ray, but beyond that, I I don't think I had rewatched it until mm. you and I had watched it for this podcast. But I had definitely done 
remembering a lot from the movie I had done later in life thinking about it and like what's going on with the themes and had engaged in like some internet conversations where folks were talking about because as we'll talk about that Tyler Durden monologue has kind of had later in life uh, applications. And uh, so I had engaged in some conversations about that and kind of what the movie is about and had done some thinking. Which monologue specifically? The snowflake monologue. The snowflake monologue. Yeah. And so I, this is the first time that I've actually like applied some of the things I've thought about the movie to like an actual watch of it was when we had watched it for this. I, uh, have not wanted to watch it another one and a half times because I kind of feel what you felt, which is like, regardless of enjoying it, I just, it's not a movie I particularly want to spend a lot of time of my life watching because mm-hmm. it's just not entirely a pleasant movie. You might actually have spent more brain power on this movie than I have wow. because I was a very uh, dumb, hot topic shopping <laughs> teenager when I first saw this. You're just like, the tragedy of my life is that I want to die, but I never do. <laughs> yes. I wanted to be Marla so bad. All right. Well, we cannot talk forever like we did when we talked about no, Joker. So... It's going to be four hours long again. <laughs> so, Stefan, do you want to get us into the uh, cold hard facts? Yes. Yes, I do. So Fight Club was released about 20 years ago on um, September 10th, 1999. <laughs> Not 30 in theaters. Uh, It's box office. It was actually pretty, it did pretty poorly at the box office. Um, It was expected to do much better. It did about 37 million uh, in North America and 67 and a half uh, worldwide. I believe that's on its first weekend. So it it underperformed. Um, People are expecting Fincher to perform much better and they were expecting, I don't think it was big stars at that point, but for whatever reason, they just wanted this to do. I think Brad Pitt, was a, a star, but I think if I remember correctly, Brad Pitt and Fincher kind of blew up around the same time with Seven, mm. and it was kind of this outing of both of them being very promising. And then Brad Pitt had had a few really interesting and high-profile roles, and he started dating Jennifer Aniston around this time. So I don't know if Brad Pitt was necessarily like people thought he was, you know, like kind of like a revered actor, but he was definitely like, people were excited about him as a person, but yeah, Edward Norton was definitely, this is young career, Edward Norton, really early David Fincher. No one knows if he's going to do another seven. And the only other thing he's done is alien three at this point. Do you know, was Helena Bonham Carter, uh, HBC, was she in anything before (laughs) that? Head bitch in charge. Yeah. Um, I do not know. I can look that up. Cool. Um, so this film was generally polarizing among critics. Um, it was agreed upon that it touched a nerve in the male psyche that was debated in newspapers across the world. Um, that was according to British newspaper, The Times. Uh, Janet Maslin for the for New York Times praised Fincher's direction and editing of the film. She wrote that Fight Club carried a message of contemporary manhood and that if not watched closely, the film could be misconstrued as an endorsement of violence and nihilism. What? Which, <laughs> Very fair, very fair. That was a a woman critic, right? Yes. This is already sounding a lot like Joker. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Very similar themes going on. Uh, Evert said for the Sun-Times, 
said that it was visceral and hard-edged, but also a thrill ride masquerading as philosophy, whose promising first act is followed by a second that panders to macho sensibilities, and a third he dismissed as trickery. He later acknowledged that the film was beloved by most, but not by him. Uh, and Jay Carr of the Boston Globe, for our negative opinion, said that the film began with an invigoratingly nervy and imaginative buzz, but that it eventually became explosively silly. It's very well known today. It has a cult status. It's known as one of the great guy movies, like I said before. Um, it caused a few real-world fight clubs to be formed in the years after that all around the country, including the Gentleman's Fight Club made up of men who worked in the tech industry in Malo, California. Oh, no. <laughs> and the film in general is very popular with adolescent and young adults, um, especially guys. One critic said, though arguably the ultimate anti-date flick, Fight Club managed a decent gender mix of 61% male, 39% female. Um, about 58% of the crowd was under 25. All right. Looks like Helena Bonham Carter had had a few roles before this, although I don't know if she was a household name per se. She was typecast as a quote-unquote corset queen, where she was playing oh. very early 20th century characters. Um, mm -hmm. She also notably played Ophelia in the Mel Gibson Hamlet movie. Wow. So, but uh, she was in a relationship with a bit with uh, Kenneth Branagh before this, um, but she was not in a relationship with Tim Burton yet. And so, and so I also know a little bit, else about this movie because um, this is based on a book uh, by Chuck Planyak. Perfect. Know, yeah. yeah, that was perfect. I, I'm, I'm the resident enunciator. Um, and no, I have terrible speech. Uh, but no, um, there's a lot of controversy and we'll get into it in a bit about what this book and then subs subsequently the movie is about, and is it toxic masculinity? Is it a criticism of it? So uh, just a little bit about Chuck Palahniuk himself. So after Fight Club had really gotten popularity with this audience, Palahniuk took a lot of pride in kind of the critique of like a consumerist culture. I mean, he himself was basically part of a fight club. So Palahniuk was actually a member of the Cacophony Society, <laughs> uh, which is pretty much the <laughs> inspiration of Fight Club. Um, in fact, they did this thing called an annual Santa Rampage, which is a public Christmas party involving pranks and drunkenness. Um, that sounds like, can I just say that that sounds like just the fucking worst <laughs> thing ever. Right. And yeah, so you're just I, like a normal person and a drunken gang of Santa Claus comes and bothers you. <laughs> Well, so a little bit more about Palahniuk. Later, in, in recent years, Palahniuk said with pride that Fight Club was the origin of the term snowflake. And he said, I coined snowflake and I stand by it. Every generation gets offended by different things, but my friends who teach in high school tell me that their students are very easily offended. The modern left is always reacting to things. Once they get their show on the road culturally, they will stop being so offended. God, there's a lot to unpack there. Right. And I just wanted to bring this up, this kind of Palahniuk history, 
Because I think this kind of speaks to some of the reviews you've talked about, which Mm. is anticipating that, you know, folks saying that this is actually a really good criticism or like this could be a criticism of contemporary manhood, but it could also be misconstrued as an endorsement of violence. And I think worth unpacking here is the kind of the line between how audiences receive this and the line between different types of audiences and the intent of Polaniak and the intent of Fincher. Because I think all of those groups are at odds with each other, yes. which is very fascinating. And again, not unlike Joker in that you can kind of ascertain whatever your interests are from this movie. So those are the cold hard facts. <laughs> Um, Probably one last little interesting thing to talk about before we really start to deconstruct this is the timing of the movie itself, because this is a pre 9-11 movie. Mm. And I think in a lot of ways, especially as I had rewatched it with you, it shows um, Interesting. Especially in, I mean, well, you have heavy terrorism themes in this movie. Yes, you do. Um, and literally the movie ends with watching building towers come crumbling down. Um, plus there's all of the flight stuff. There's like this weird security thing where he's like stopped because his razor is like vibrating or something. Or his <laughs> dildo. We don't know. Yeah, that's true. We never I love that got scene. resolution. So I don't know. I mean, do you think like part of the success of this movie, like I wonder if 9-11 changes it. Mm. If like the approach to like a like very open discussion and depiction of like anarchic terrorism, Uh if that even flies in a post 9-11 filmscape. I, I think it could fly. And I think the only reason it could fly is because the main characters are white and american (laughs) yeah but do you don't do you think people would still be uncomfortable especially feeling like this movie might be an endorsement of that sort of behavior um i think it would get a very joker-esque style maybe like a warning Mm. there's some of the things that joker got so an air of caution around the release of it maybe Mm. but i don't think it's too too heavy on like not 9-11-ish themes, but 9-11 adjacent themes. I I just wonder, I mean, the whole movie is building up to this final act of terrorism, which is literally exploding buildings Mm. in the city. And I just, can you even, can you even end with that? Can that be the like grand fromage? Maybe not. Maybe not the end scene. They might have to change it. Yeah. Because it's really, it's kind of romanticized. Or it could be read as being romantic. Well, they literally hold hands yes. <laughs> as it happens. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, because, I mean, the whole blowing up the credit card company buildings is, like, this metaphor for, like, what, what does Tyler say? Like, everyone starts at zero yeah. or <laughs> blank slate. Yeah, blank slate. And it's like, what could you do? Because I think there is something romantic about that idea. I mean, mm. obviously, this movie does speak if you are anti-consumerist anti-capitalist so this movie does align with you in that sense it's obviously very aggressively it's not necessarily saying you shouldn't be you should be pro-capitalist i think the movie has more discussion and what you do with that but Mm. i do think this movie and the book are pretty resentful towards capitalism and consumerist culture and 
I, I would wonder what you could even do that would have the same weight and kind of satisfaction of like in the movie world, even though he has changed and maybe past this kind of toxic version of himself, they still successfully do bring everyone to this like post consumerist landscape where yeah. they're at zero and the credit card companies got it. And, and that brings up an interesting point um, because it the ending to the book is actually very different from the ending to the movie. I don't even remember. School so me. Do in, it. in the book, the narrator, he like wakes up in an asylum, but the, the workers at the asylum are members of the fight club cult. So they mm-hmm. let him go. So there's no giant final shot i'm not sure if all the credit card companies do get well no and i'm kind of remembering this and also i'm looking at this on on wikipedia as well so there there is still this plan to blow up a skyscraper as well as a a national museum and tyler is actually planning to die during this event Hmm. um and so but it doesn't come to fruition because Tyler made the explosive wrong, basically. Mm. But it's this idea of then, yeah, then uh, the narrator still puts the gun in his mouth, shoots himself to make sure that Tyler's gone. And then, yeah, this mental hospital scene happens and Tyler still lives on through these other troubled men, troubled, lost feeling men. Interesting. And so it's, that is interesting because then that's a very conscious, I mean, David Fincher didn't write the movie, uh, Jim Ewells, is that his name? Yeah. Jim Ewells adapted this, but that seems like a very conscious decision to change it from an, an unsuccessful event that, but also not this romanticized ending, this kind of horrific ending where like Tyler doesn't go away tyler lives on and then this is kind of the opposite where tyler doesn't live on tyler's done but also tyler's like big plan still goes through and it's almost like it's almost like putting like a period at the end of tyler's sentence Mm -hmm. versus like a comma that someone erased i guess I mean, that ending, that's one of those endings that I've seen like gift a million times on Tumblr or Reddit or whatever is all of these buildings exploding. Yeah, it's very much let's watch the world and together. Yeah. And so one, yeah, I think you can't do that. You can't, you can't end with some romantic view of like buildings falling down. But two, like the fact that that was even a conscious decision is really interesting. And obviously that ending contributed to the film's praise because, you know, one, that's how everything gets tied together. But it, it's this kind of satisfaction of still sticking it to the man. Yeah. And being with this manic pixie, mostly manic dream girl. <laughs> <laughs> manic, manic dream girl. Yeah. <laughs> manic, manic, manic girl. <laughs> and like being quote unquote fucked up, you know, <laughs> like I'm fucked up and being fucked up together. And also seeing the fall of capitalism, I guess. I don't know. So um, did, did you say that the event wasn't targeting credit companies in the book? It looks that, like, no, it looks like um, that uh, he's just going to blow up a skyscraper. The target is a national museum. That's 
that's completely different so from a the lot statement of, this, of the film. I mean, the book is still a a is anti-consumerist, but it seems mm. like the movie just totally leans into it. Yes. Where the book leans into more of this idea of like chaos continuing, mm. of like this ideology living on. And perhaps maybe this is why this is also speaks to different interpretations of the story where Chuck Palahniuk seems to not be so left-leaning in his personal life. What? And this book, he seems to interpret like being more on Tyler's side of being like, yeah, fuck consumerism. And yeah, like be anarchy, be chaotic, you Go know. Go punch someone in the face. Yeah. And so the idea that... Because then you'll feel something. Yeah, the idea that Tyler is like a... a um a train that can't be stopped essentially. Mm. And that the narrator now is going to perpetually be at odds with him and was like institutionalized is really interesting compared to David Fincher. Who's like, no, he, he wins. He successfully gets rid of Tyler, Mm. but the anti-consumerism that's legitimate. Yeah. (laughs) Screw the credit companies. I mean, I think this movie has more of a legacy than the book does. Yeah, oh, for sure. And so I wonder if a change like that contributes to that kind of praise and contributes to certainly a mindset, a pre-9-11 mindset, which is you do have this kind of 90s. I mean, it's very obvious in the way Edward Norton's character is portrayed and in his job and in his life. Like this is a, a snapshot of late 90s, mm-hmm. like lifestyle and masculinity and like the rise of Ikea and whatever. <laughs> and so the idea that... um leaning into this insecurity that's kind of happening at the time and finding a much more satisfying ending to it that speaks much more to 1999 than the ending of the book, which seems a lot more of a self-insert almost from um, someone from the cacophony society. Of his very own, Tyler, his, himself as Tyler Durden. That's my biography. Well, what a transition, because I think to really get into this movie... I think we got to break down all of these characters. We do. Because all of these characters, and we're going to talk in terms of the movie. I think, you know, we can talk a little bit about the plot in terms of, you know, Chuck Palahniuk's vision and David Fincher's execution. But ultimately, who are these characters? What do they represent? How are they portrayed? And what does that mean in terms of gender, identity, and politics? Are you ready to get into this, Stefan? Yeah, I mean, this is a really character-driven movie, so... It really is. And you can the success is far more in the meat of the movie itself than any of the kind of noise around it, certainly. So um, we are going to talk about Fight Club a little bit more. We're going to talk about Tyler Durden, Marla Singer, and the narrator slash Tyler Durden? Slash Jack, uh, which is how he's referred to in the screenplay. Oh, really? Yeah. He's na- like his actual name. Yeah, he type. has a name. It's Jack, which is interesting with that whole, the, those single cutaway lines of I am right. Jack's blah, blah, blah. The the um, the kind of uh, narrative exercise that someone else is telling him about where someone personified body parts. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. Well, then we're really going to get into this. So yeah. uh, stick around. 
But before we get into Fight Club, we want to talk to you a bit about Circles and Ciphers. Circles and Ciphers is a hip-hop-infused restorative justice organization led by and for young people impacted by violence. Through art-based peace circles, education, and direct action, they collectively heal and work to bring about the abolition of the prison industrial complex. It's essentially a fight club if the fighting was replaced with hip-hop and the anarchy was replaced with abolition. Basically, everything good about Fight Club. Circles and Ciphers holds multiple healing circles, including a young men's circle, as well as space for young women and femmes of color. You can learn more about their programming, purchase their magazine or hip-hop postcards, and donate by visiting circlesandciphers.org. Again, that is circlesandciphers.org. Additionally, for every listen up to 25 listens of this episode, we will donate $2 to Circles and Ciphers to continue to support the important work that they do. Now, we're going to get back to it and dive in real deep into Fight Club. Uh, we're back, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're talking about Fight Club, which is, oh, God, we're talking about it. We're not supposed to talk about it, Stefan. Oh, that's the first rule, It's the first it? rule. We're fucking breaking it. Um, I knew that line before I saw the movie. What did you think of it? A Fight Club or the line? <laughs> <laughs> the line. The first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. Yeah, we like ah, oh, this is you're gonna this is gonna be a cool movie. People make jokes about it a lot. Do you think they're good jokes? No, they're just <laughs> reference jokes. They're not funny. What you mean it's not Wait, a Smash Cut to us making reference jokes for like an hour in this podcast. <laughs> you don't think it's a good punchline to just change an existing line to be about something else? No, it's really good. The first rule of podcasting is don't talk about podcasting God, and then so there's clever. then the big bang theory crowd just goes <laughs> crazy Bazinga. our whole universe was in a hot dense state that nearly 14 million years ago expansion started way the earth began to cool the autotrophs began to drool neanderthals developed tools we built the wall Um, we're back and we're talking about Fight Club and we're going to break it, things down now, get a little in depth. That's what we like to do here. And how did this get praised? We like for to like, go in deep. We like to go in, um, one might say balls deep, which I feel like is a very apt comparison. Oh yeah. Testicular cancer. Yeah. And masculinity in oh. general. Like that. Uh, balls are not exclusive to men. They are not, but people often say balls up or... Wait, you need balls <laughs> you know the expressions about balls are commonly referred to in terms of masculinity balls, <laughs> balls up balls up oh. <laughs> continue continue so i feel like we should talk about the balls up master tyler durden and I feel like that's how we should start our breakdown of each of the film's three main characters and talking about them in terms of gender, identity, and politics. Um, we'll be talking about Tyler Durden, Marla Singer, and we're going to end off on the narrator. So let's talk about Tyler. Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden. <laughs> is, he's kind of the personification of masculinity. Oh, Absolutely. He's this hot shot, fuck everything. I'm going to do what I want, take the initiative, be big and 
bold and punch strangers in the face because I want to feel my carnal manly instincts well up. You know what's really interesting, and I'm just thinking of this, I'm actually like just thinking of this as you're describing Tyler, and this is something I'm starting to realize, Mm -hmm. is Tyler doesn't start out that way. He doesn't. Which makes sense, because he's not, he's not real. (laughs) Yes, it's a very gradual incline of him starting out kind of as this goofy masculine kind of a goofy example of masculinity. I remember there's one scene that I think is really hilarious where Tyler is practicing nunchucks in the background while the narrator, I think, is talking to the detective on the phone. Uh And it's so fucking stupid. He just looks like such a doofy dude bro chucking around his nunchucks in the background. It's fantastic. But it kind of sums up what Tyler is. He's that doofy-ass guy who isn't super intelligent but likes to think that he is well yeah and it's like um i'm i'm gonna pull it up in the the screenplay their first encounter because the first time that they talk on the airplane they're kind of like relating just of like they're both these couple of guys who are kind of in this weird moment of of like you know this insecure masculinity of the late 90s or Mm -hmm. whatever and they're just kind of like both like kind of lamenting about like their similar gripes about like living but it's not necessarily like oh no like tyler's not like ah you like kill everyone (laughs) (laughs) you want to burn it all down well i mean he kind of is so um the first thing he says this is his very first line there are three ways to make napalm (laughs) one mix equal parts of gasoline and frozen orange juice Two, equal parts gasoline and diet cola. Three, dissolve kitty litter in gasoline until the mixture is thick. And then here it goes, pardon me. (laughs) And then he kind of just talks like these very like fatalist sentences almost. He's like talking about like um, why there are oxygen masks on airplanes uh, so that you can feel like euphoria before you die. And then uh, there's this exchange. The narrator says, what do you do, Tyler? And Tyler says, what do you want me to do? Hmm. Hmm. And then narrator says, I mean, for a living, Tyler says, why? So you can say, oh, that's what you do and be a smug little shit about it. <laughs> and it's, it is kind of this thing of like, Tyler's, Tyler is like, has maybe like anarchist thoughts, but kind of in the same way of like, I imagine someone would now, like it's almost kind of like in a very like Bernie bro kind of way. Mm -hmm. He's just like, yeah, burn it all down. But also like, we're just a couple of guys being guys and like on an airplane and traveling. And here are my sly observations about existence. Throughout this movie, it's so hard to take Tyler seriously as a character until the very end no and then and then he's like super serious all the time and like hyper violent and like yeah i mean even if you just saw the second half of the movie you would maybe believe like this is something tyler has been working on for ages but when they first like when they first get into a fight behind the bar like and and tyler's like hit me hit me he even says i've never been hit before i've never been in a fight yeah i've never been in a fight and so it's kind of this idea of like which, you know, obviously they're the same person, yes. but it is what? like, 
as we're watching the movie, <laughs> Tyler also goes through this change. This isn't always Tyler, but mm. kind of at the end, it's almost like this was always Tyler. Like this was always his MO because he has his hooks on the narrator. And it's just the narrator losing himself more and more in this snarky, hyper-masculine, wearing sunglasses on an airplane and like mm. a red leather jacket <laughs> kind of guy. Now I got to decide whether to give you the ass or the crotch. <laughs> Tyler has the best one-liners, too, in the movie, so... Is Tyler gay? I think so. I actually had the thought watching this the second time, is Fight Club just a code for, like, gay sex and gay orgies? So, Chuck Palahniuk himself is gay, which I do think it's unfair to say he made a book about men just having sex, but yes. did a cover. But there are certainly a incredibly homoerotic relationship between Tyler and the narrator. And, and so let's talk about this in terms of like, okay, Tyler is this personified masculinity. He's uber cool. He's the guy the narrator wants to be. Mm-hmm. He's the guy Marla wants to fuck. Um, and he has the influence to convince many, many insecure men, men who are very uncomfortable with their masculinity to like follow him to a cultish extent. He is this hyper-masculine figure. And yeah, there is like Fight Club in itself is homoerotic. You're not allowed to wear a shirt. That's like one of the rules of Fight Club. You must take your shirt and your shoes off. And it's these sweaty men fighting around. He he bathes in front of the narrator. And, and what's that exchange they have that's like super gay? He's like, you are you gonna ask? Tyler asked the narrator, are you going to ask? Oh, that's right. About like, like, if you can stay at my place. Yeah, yeah. He's um, like, oh, can I, can I stay at your place? And he's like, yeah. I thought you never ask. <laughs> and so he like openly flirts with the narrator, but in, at, at the same time, he is loudly having sex with Marla. Yeah, So the point loudly. where the narrator can hear and the narrator is like disgusted by this. And it's almost unclear, like, is he disgusted that Marla is here? Is he disgusted that Tyler's having sex with her? Is he uncomfortable that he hears Tyler having sex? Is he jealous that he you doesn't know, I have thought sex? It was yeah. jealousy, but it might be jealousy over Marla getting well, to fuck Tyler. Or is it is it jealousy, not necessarily that he gets to fuck Marla, but that he can't fuck like Tyler? You know, that yeah. he wishes he had this kind of and and <sighs> I mean, this is kind of what the male gaze, you know, when we talk <laughs> and male gaze and maybe male gaze. both means of big mood. Term. When we talk about the male gaze, there's always the defense of like, well, when you ever, whenever you see like sweaty, muscular guys on screen, that's a female gaze, but it's not. That's the male gaze too, because mm-hmm. there's this idea of like what men covet and men covet having this power, having this masculinity, being like these other men. That's why like He-Man dolls are so popular and not considered really gay, even though they kind of (laughs) are, is because like, this is is the ideal. And so, yeah, I kind of interpret it. It's not that he's jealous that Tyler's fucking Marla. And it's not even necessarily he wants to have sex with Tyler. But I think there is this jealousy that one, Tyler is not paying attention to him. That Tyler is putting effort into women when in general, they're kind of like, who cares about women? And so why is he wasting time with Marla? Mm -hmm. And two, that like, yeah, he can hear Tyler being a complete animal in bed and feels insecure by that, feels dwarfed by that. I just watch 
those fight club scenes. And a lot of them are cut very similarly to sex scenes. Interesting. Similar angles, similar pacing, similar flashes of skin, similar sounds, moans, and grunts. Mm-hmm. So it's just... I, well, and there's I also... Reading the narrator as explicitly... I mean, he's not explicitly gay, but sort of interpreting that is an interesting idea. And well, I don't know if I totally subscribe to it or not. If there's some self-insert um, and from Chuck Palahniuk's perspective, which I believe he is not out at this point, and this isn't explicitly like wanting to be gay and wanting to have gay sex, but is about someone who feels that the current consumerist culture and the current ideal of who you're supposed to be as a man um, makes you effeminate or like de- like demasculates you. Mm-hmm. And that also it's shamed upon that you can't be intimate with men in any respect. And Tyler is very pro intimacy in kind of every respect. He like kind of, you know, he's like, when he is like, move in with me, like, why are you kind of being like, you know, skirting around this issue like yeah. just fucking move in with me and being very comfortable with himself around the narrator and they're bathing with each other and you like trust him to to fight him and yeah like fighting does kind of have the sexual sense in the sense of like the intimacy it requires it's a physical intimacy it is a vulnerability in the same way that sex is which are allowing someone to to harm you and like trusting that person to do that and not kill you you mm. know and to there's the whole idea of consent in fight club, which is still like you have to abide when someone taps out. Yes. You know, you have to stop when they're done. And so fight club is kind of, kind of this idea of sex and this idea of like forbidden sex. You're not supposed to be doing this. And so Mm -hmm. it is liberating to do this, which is the same thing. Homosexuality men are not supposed to do it because it's considered emasculating. And so in a sense, doing so freely and doing so, you know, and, and, and enjoying it liberally is freeing in a, in a way. Even at one point, the narrator talks about this in a monologue. He switches from kind of hiding what his bruises are about to just telling people, yeah, I was in a fight, like deal with it. And he prints out the fight club rules on his work. Like he wants people, he starts bragging about it. Right. He's like um, almost like openly out. Yeah. But it's, it is kind of, if you think about the idea of the first rule of fight club is don't talk about fight club. It's like, don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. It's like, Oh, people know fight club exists. People know might even determine that you're participating in it. And you can tell if you and another person have both been at fight club, but you don't talk about it with each other in public fight club only exists in fight club. And again, that's like, kind of a metaphor for like homosexuality especially in the 90s you know we're still coming off of you know the shit show of the ladies yeah and so the idea of yeah this is something we can't publicly talk about but we are going to like wholeheartedly enjoy and is going to liberate us and this is completely the antithesis of what the world wants us to be as Mm -hmm. men and all of the men that they attract to fight club are effeminate in one way or another because you have bob who um 
as the book in the movie puts it, has bitch tits. And he has testicular cancer and mm-hmm. he openly cries and he's very effeminate and, you know, in kind of an emasculating way, not saying that I ascribe that to him, but obviously like in the scheme of yes. how masculinity is determined, he's effeminate. You have Jared Leto's character who is literally called what pretty face or uh, angel face, angel face. And he's, this blonde, blue-eyed, very pretty, unscathed. Uh, the narrator wants to beat him up so that he can destroy something beautiful. Uh, he is twinkish, one might say. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like, it is kind of this exploration of different types of like emasculation, which is feeling emasculated because you're not successful enough in your job or by the the constraints of consumerism, not feeling masculine enough because you're not doing stereotypically masculine things or look Mm. like the embodiment of masculinity, or you're not masculine enough because uh, you've literally had testicular cancer. You literally have developed breasts. It's like all of these explorations and it comes together in this intimate primal physical expression with other men who are feeling the same as you. Uh, But then it goes unchecked. So based on that, I have to bring up the question of intention here. Mm -hmm. Um, Do Polaniak and separately Fincher, are they criticizing these men for being feminine? Or are they saying that is Fight Club like their inner conflict resolving itself of them being themselves and being feminine and versus the masculine stereotype that society wants them to be? I think neither Polanyak or Fincher are criticizing not meeting the terms of masculinity. I think both of them are are in support of like, this is absurd. Like this is an actual criticism of the expectations that are placed upon men mm-hmm. for who they have to be, which isn't talked about very often. However, I think Polanyak's interpretation, and a lot of this is based on the small differences between the book and the movie, but also just him as in a person. I think Polanyak is very clearly saying with the book, And so you need to go to anarchy and you need to fuck Mm -hmm. people up and you need to like, you know, go all in and stick it to the man and, you know, and, and be yourself and overcompensate. And because in, in his mind, it's not endorsing masculinity. It's instead turning to anarchy and chaos. I think Fincher sees that in the way that I'm interpreting the movie and sees that as a commodification of masculinity rather than acceptance of who you are. Yes. And so Fincher is criticizing the means of this violence and this dogma and this extremism and is criticizing it as a toxic escape from the insecurities, from not meeting the masculine ideal. And I don't think that's Polanyak's interpretation. I don't even think he would say that this is in, like appropriating hyper-masculinity to overcompensate. I think in his mind, it's making everyone else's lives chaotic and making them have to confront their expectations 
but I think Fincher sees like the danger in that and sees how that's not an acceptance of self. That's not an acceptance of like, fuck these rules. And I think to an extent fight club itself is liberating in, in both, in both pieces in the book and in the movie. Hmm. But I think it's when it turns into project mayhem, that's where they diverge. And that's where Fincher is like, this is what happens when insecurity in men goes unchecked. Yeah. And literally when uh, the narrator stops going to therapy and stops going to group therapy and instead follows like cults who tell you uh, instead of feeling good about yourself or f- feeling like you're special or deserving as you are, uh, you're not special and it's the world isn't special and the world is shit. And so yeah. you're also shit. <laughs> and Which I is think- what... Tyler serves to do in the plot. He is that shift. Right. He's the agent that caused that shift. Which is why Tyler Durden, and I think this is what we're getting at, is like, is personified masculinity. Mm -hmm. He actually turns into the expectation of masculinity. Even though at the beginning, he's kind of with the narrator of like, we shouldn't have to uphold this, but he already is upholding it because he's already fucking ripped and like fucking Marla without even thinking about it, you know, and just kind of like, Hey, don't even talk about me to her. And that he wants to be hit. He's the one who wants to experience this level of violence. Mm. And so Tyler is, he's not fighting against the expectations. And I think, I think in the book, I think that's Polaniak's intent, Mm. but I think Fincher sees him as the personification of the expectation of who you're supposed to be. It's just a different side. It's not the metrosexual. You need to have a great desk job and make a hundred K a year and have a great apartment ideal of like contemporary American dream. Mm. But it's this opposite masculinity that also is impossible to, to live up to and is dangerous and not good for you. In a completely different way. Yeah. And I think the narrator at the end of the movie, and this is kind of like, I think why we end with the building still coming down, but also Tyler being defeated is the narrator in the happy medium. You know, the, mm-hmm. the establishment he's fighting against isn't protected because that is an unrealistic expectation, but also Tyler as a hyper-masculine personification also is an unhealthy expectation. And is and so, defeated and... Both are defeated, yeah. The narrator gets over it. Yeah. And then it accepts intimacy with a woman, which we'll talk about in a second, how Marla, <laughs> as a woman, fits into all of this. And maybe he'll stop treating her like absolute shit after that, but we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> no, except in the graphic novels. There are sequels that are graphic novels. I don't know. By Polaniuk. That... Yeah. Yeah, that have nothing to do with the, the as of yet. Maybe they'll come back to maybe Fincher will come back to it. Um before we leave Tyler, I did want to bring up my initial reading of him. Yeah. After I- we talked about Chuck um and his background, I kind of was thinking about this. That I saw Tyler as kind of the in in the gay community, there's this kind of there are these pockets that fixate on masculinity and hyper masculinity and kind of reject the quote unquote 
more stereotypically flamboyant femi uh characteristics in in gay men mm-hmm. so when i saw the film and we read about chuck that was sort of my first thought is that tyler represents that and polaniuk is glorifying that mm-hmm. but now after we just talked about it the fact that polaniuk isn't glorifying Tyler Durden is an interesting take to me that I want to think about more. No, I think he is though. I just think Fincher isn't. I think Polaniak, I think Polaniak in the way that Tyler Durden also lives on in the books, I think Tyler Durden is almost his self insert. It is Mm -hmm. his self insert of who he wants to be of like, And I think that fits in with this idea of like, yeah, this like subset of gay men who are gay, but pretty much subscribe to every other part of like stereotypical every other norm manhood and yeah, heteronormative patriarchal norm. And Tyler Durden's kind of the same, which is like when it comes to my own places where I don't meet the expectations of masculinity, I am allowed. And I am going to give myself approval to not meet that. But everyone else should meet all of the other expectations of masculinity all the time or else they're bad. And that is kind of like, he's anti-consumerist and he's anti-capitalist, but he still is like, um, he is like, we have to be animals and we have to take what's ours and your shit and, you know, and like making other men suffer to prove their allegiance. I have heard Tyler's lines the Tylerologies just come out of so many mouths of like, I am so deep men just talking about how modern society is so lame. We just got to get back to our primal instincts and just fuck things up, you know? Well, Polania coined the term snowflake. It's true. <laughs> it takes it, pride in it. <laughs> it sort of all comes back to that for me. And I think that's why I was so averse to watching the movie after we watched it the first time, after we saw that Polaniuk was such an anti-liberal, pro-masculine pro stereotypes, pro And like pro-chaos. Chaos. Yeah. yeah. And pro like making people uncomfortable and like fuck the norm, but also be the norm. <laughs> I think he said about his partner, he's like, we both came from blue collar jobs. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) that's nice. Glad you're so proud of your masculinity, despite the fact that you're gay. You really did it. Yeah. Congrats. He's like, we had these very blue collar lives, but now our lives are completely different. (laughs) So the fact that Tyler in that second half of the film could be, interpreted as someone by someone as so serious and yes i subscribe to this and yes i think what he did was badass and cool that really kind of pushed me off but i think when you read fincher's interpretation of it it's that it's criticism of that but people could read into that as like yeah i was gonna society and burn everything down i was gonna say and maybe we should hold off getting into kind of how this all comes together But I do think there is a disconnect between what Fincher is doing here and how it's interpreted. And 
I think that really comes down to the narrator character. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to put that out there and we can sit with it and we'll keep going. But cool. I think that contributes a lot to this movie's praise. And unfortunately, I don't know if it's necessarily praise for the right reasons. And I think, as you said, you hear Tylerisms come out of a lot of dudes. And I think that is a big contribution to this movie's success as a movie is Tyler Durden. That makes me so queasy. I know. (laughs) Um, We have to keep moving. Yes. Um, Who are we talking about next, Stefan? I'm talking about Marla. Let's talk about Marla. Um, we don't have to spend that much time on Marla. The movie doesn't. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> oh, my God. Amazing. Marla is the only female character, really. Yeah. Not just the only female perspective. She is really the only female character in this movie. And the biggest thing for me is at the very beginning, she is pretty much presented as a scapegoat for the narrator. Mm-hmm. When we have this line, we kind of start with this. <laughs> I do love that this movie starts with one of those like, and now I bet you're wondering how I got here. <laughs> like, Record scratch. Yeah. <laughs> but we see a, a hint of the later part where he's got the gun in his mouth with Tyler. This. Two and a half. Think of everything we've accomplished. And suddenly, I realized that all of this, the gun, the bombs, the revolution, has got something to do with a girl named Marla Singer. How the fuck is anything that happens in this movie Marla's fault beyond she started going to group therapy and he didn't feel comfortable crying anymore? That... She did the exact same thing that he did. And he says, quote, she ruined everything. This chick, Marla Singer, she was a liar. She had no disease at all. Marla, the big tourist. And then he later says, I'm going to grab that little bitch, Marla Singer. And just is so aggressive towards her when she's doing the exact same thing that he's been doing for weeks. And so Marla fills him with such rage and essentially all that she does is catches him emasculating himself like that's it Mm -hmm. and because he and he starts going to these group therapies and he's lying about these diseases because they make him feel safe to cry that's like the biggest thing and then his insomnia is cured his insomnia is not cured by and maybe we're already getting into the narrative it's not Mm -hmm. cured by tyler or fight club or project mayhem his insomnia is cured by going to group therapy and yes lying about these diseases but then just openly crying and being vulnerable and having someone listen to him and having having someone listen to him and the focus even though he goes to different support groups the big focused one is going to testicular cancer which could be considered emasculating in itself Mm -hmm. and especially bob is his pal at testicular cancer group bob with the bitch tits and that he in spite of having judgmental thoughts about bob he loves to just bury himself in the bob's chest and like weep with him Mm -hmm. 
And then Marla shows up at testicular cancer group therapy and he can't do it anymore. He says he can't even produce a tear and then basically tells her she has to leave, (laughs) has to leave his space. And he attributes the entire course of what happens without any responsibility to himself (laughs) and attributes it to the fact that Marla ruined this for him. Which would be relying on so many coincidences coincidences happening after meeting Marla. It's just like that leap in logic is so misogynistic and and incredible. Obstensively, because he is Tyler, he is at the very least sexually interested in her because he pursues her. Yes. (laughs) Through Tyler, but he only feels comfortable doing so through Tyler, through the hyper-masculine version Mm -hmm. of himself, rather than the one who cries at testicular group therapy. Can I also just add that the narrator also said, if I did have a tumor, I'd name it Marla. <laughs> oh my God. So can, can we talk about Marla more specifically instead of her? Oh, uh, yeah, no. Relationship yeah. With the narrator. yeah. I hate women. <laughs> <laughs> um, Marla seems to me, she's the film's feminine perspective, but she's very stereotypically not, not stereotypically feminine. She herself is very masculine. Yes. She has a lot of the same masculine energy that Tyler does. Mm-hmm. Actually, she's confident. She knows what she wants. She's not afraid to just speak out to something. She's not going to beat her on the bush. Brazenly sexual. Yes. And so why do we think that Polanyuk wanted to include a character like is Marla just another way that the narrator's emasculated because she's so masculine in herself. And it's like, Oh, these scary nineties women, they're so masculine and confident. And I miss the good old days when women just wanted to stay home and cook. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the key reasons that the first group, even though she's going to all of the group therapies that he's in, the first one she shows up in is testicular cancer, mm-hmm. which is that he feels extra emasculated with her catching him in this group, essentially. And yeah, Marla is sexually confident. She is emotionally cold towards him, especially at the beginning, where she's basically like, bye, we don't have to talk to each other anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't give a shit about you. If this is what will make you happy, if we stagger our dates, whatever. Um, and so this idea that she is hyper-masculine and, and that makes him uncomfortable and that makes him hate her. He has like a seething hatred of her before based on her personality, but is also intrigued by her. Um, but what we find out later is she isn't, this is itself is a shell for her to move through life because Mm -hmm. we end up learning that she herself is very vulnerable she is depressed and suicidal um, that she, when she starts sleeping with quote unquote Tyler, she kind of wants to stick around and is Mm -hmm. really hurt when Tyler or the narrator, the narrator at that point tells her to just leave. And she's very hurt by this. She obviously thinks that some sort of relationship might come through and she keeps getting caught up in his shit, but she obviously like cares about him to an extent. And it's this more of this performative masculinity mm. of this hyper-confidence that she doesn't have. She's depressed. She doesn't want to live. And that seems like it might be, I don't know if she's like that in the book or if she's like, that'd be an interesting question to look at because 
it, it would seem, and this might be a jump, that Polaniuk would look at Marla in just terms of a flat kind of, this is a masculine woman who further emasculates the narrator. But where Fincher might say women are also negatively affected by hypermasculinity and societal stereotypic, like the need to be masculine to never be vulnerable. I want to add, it looks like in the book, I kind of forgot this. The narrator actually thinks Tyler and Marla might be the same person. Oh. Because I mean, he never sees them at the same time. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So that brings us back to our discussion before the podcast, <laughs> or maybe at the beginning of the podcast. I don't remember when we were talking about this all just being Marla's. She's the narrator who's also Tyler. (laughs) Which is now I think is how is what I'm going to tell people is my interpretation. Because Marla, Marla is the most interesting and likable character. Yeah, we don't find a lot. Well, and that's what I was going to say. In spite of her representing actually maybe a really complex idea, which is one, this kind of like masculine hatred of women and the use of them as like, blaming your own insecurities on women rather than like facing them yourself. Um, But also the idea of like a woman herself can't get by unless she puts up a masculine exterior, which is Mm -hmm. merely not just performative, but protective. And that how that emasculates him. She represents these complex ideas, but as an actual character, and I want to just talk about the movie. I mean, do you think, do you think she's actually fleshed out or even though there is some criticism of her being treated like an object, is she ultimately still an object in the movie? It's hard to say. Um, There are moments where it feels like she has fleshed out, fleshed out those moments where she's being vulnerable. She tells the narrator how she wants more intimacy that, that they had when she was having sex with Tyler. But then She's just, at the ending, it feels like she's just kind of there along for his journey. The fact that she doesn't know anything about Project Mayhem, they try to like kill her for possibly finding out anything about Project Mayhem. And then at the end, she just holds hands. Yeah, she's just like there to support him. Which I guess is nice, but it doesn't really say anything about what she... We, we didn't ever get a resolution to her journey. It doesn't speak very much to her self-esteem either. <laughs> well, and, and the other thing, and again, you know, this podcast is about how other people are interpreting this. I had more of an impression of Marla from this movie before seeing it, kind of from like the Tumblr hive than I mm-hmm. did about the other characters. Because she really did become emblematic of like this kind of edgy... And this is, you know, like, even pre-Helena Bottom Carter's, like, actual Hot Topic-esque rules in Tim Burton movies. But this is, like, kind of the prototype for that. And this is, like, a sort of Manic Pixie Dream Girl, a really early one. Um, A really early one in 99, but, like, where you get, you know, she's damaged and she's broken and she wants to kill herself but she's also like really funny in the way that she talks about it where she's like oh i think this is one of those casual cry for helps and not like an actual suicide attempt which is like a little problematic (laughs) and 
it's this idea that she's still kind of reduced to being like a cool girl, but like a certain type of cool girl, like an edgy one, a mystifying one, an enigma, a puzzle box to be solved. And that's almost why the narrator is so perplexed by her because he can't solve her. Mm. And you're right. We never get resolution of that. We never actually get a full character from her. We kind of just get bullet points of like, she's broken and she wants a relationship, but she's like funny and she (laughs) doesn't need, like she's above your dick or whatever. And so like, ultimately I think the movie actually does a disservice in like it's messaging, which like I can think about the movie and see like, Oh, Marla clearly represents a problematic attitude towards women from the perspective of the two central men of this movie. Mm-hmm. But the movie itself doesn't really do much for like, especially if you are a, a man and a man who identifies with a Tyler Durden type doesn't do anything to like demystify that or to no. be like, no, she's actually her own person and very complex and like struggling just as you are as an insecure man. And instead does kind of just make her like, a quirky girl for, for, for lack of a better descriptor. Who's just going to come in and hold your hand at the yeah. end and help you get through it. Yeah. It is. The ending is, the ending's weird. The ending that, is weird. That last shot. Is it actually romantic? It, it feels romantic, right? Do you think it's meant to be though? Or do you think it's just sad? Like these folks are going to continue in this. Like maybe it, and maybe this is a good transition in the narrator is the narrator as unresolved as Marla is like, have they actually moved anywhere into like more content in their lives mm. or are they just in the same place, but at least not alone with it? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, my first thought is that the narrator has defeated Tyler. He's let go of his job he's let go he's destroyed the credit card company so he it's a blank slate i guess i don't know if that's growth because everything is now gone he has it doesn't still exist and he's now like overcome it on a personal level it's just gone like is is blowing something up really getting growing past it he also has no job now (laughs) Oh yeah, from a logistical standpoint, there's a lot of questions, but I guess it's more symbolically. I guess so. Um, yeah, I mean, just to tie a bow on Marla in the way that the movie doesn't. <laughs> I just kind of, I do kind of feel like if you are, it's easy to romanticize this relationship at the end. And to be like, the fact that they're fucked up is what makes them good for each other. It's like almost that kind of like teen romance where it's Mm -hmm. like, I'm damaged. You're damaged. Let's be damaged together. (laughs) Super toxic. Yeah. Just because you're both damaged doesn't mean you're... That means you both have to work on fixing that damage. Maybe both go back to therapy. That's when you were at your best. (laughs) Go back to the group. I think that's a a good way to move now yeah to how this all comes together in the narrator so do you think that the narrator ultimately grows because it's it's hard for me now to say that he grows because 
He still says, you've met me at a very strange time in my life. I'm pretty fucked up. (laughs) But he's destroyed, like I said before, he's destroyed everything. He destroyed Tyler. He destroyed consumerism on a metaphorical, in a symbolic way, I guess, blowing up the credit card companies. Is that really growth? Has he really changed? I want to believe that that line actually signifies yes, which is in the sense of like, he's in a transition and that he's openly acknowledging like, yeah, as you said, like can't, can't go back to the way things were. (laughs) Things are very different now. (laughs) And I, I, if we're looking at him individually and not like how he will form a life outwards he has grown because he realized that Tyler is not the answer and acknowledging Mm. that Tyler is him is a realization. And in the context of this movie where Tyler does not win, where Tyler is defeated, ostensibly project mayhem is defeated. He comes to this conclusion that he needs to kill this part of him this part of him that wants to embody hyper-masculinity, this part of him that needs to be in a position of power mm-hmm. to feel impactful or worthwhile. Which is probably the main difference from Polaniuk's book. I think is so, that- because if the sense in, in the book, he loses, you know? He's mm-hmm. just, and Tyler lives on, and Tyler basically overpowers him. I can't speak, again, I don't remember the book super well, I can't speak to, like, whether it's, tragic that tyler wins out or like it seems like empowering from what we know of the book sure there's some sense of horror but maybe it's the horror of things being out of your control Mm. rather than i don't know and maybe that's the sense maybe it's the sense that the narrator doesn't feel the need to have control over things and not like a in a chaotic way but in a like I don't need to have a catalog pick out my apartment for me. And I don't... And define me as a person. Yeah, and I don't need, like, to fit into this mold. I can ebb and flow with life in the way that life moves, which is, like, this was a very strange time. Mm -hmm. And now it's going to probably continue to be a strange time. And we're just going to have to... We're just going to have to figure that out instead of falling into the anxiety of it. I do think he's grown. I think we can see that it's the way he is such a self pitying whiny little bitch baby at the beginning of this movie. He's just like the worst, like actually the worst, you know, he, he complains about everything. He's very, um, without really trying to do anything about it. He meets Tyler he confronts that consumerism side of himself. He confronts the desire to be masculine part of himself. And so hopefully he can just kind of go on and try to be like a normal human being. Yeah, it's and transcend idea. it. Like external forces aren't shaping him anymore. In the same way, the building gets exploded and everyone starts at zero financially and he gets to start at zero as a person because he has destroyed both parts of his personality the neurotic nebbish office worker who 
you know, who is a, is a slut for consumerism and the hyper-masculine, I'm leading a cult. I, I take what's mine kind of guy. And now both of those sides are burned down. And so now he is in the middle. Now he can just be left with his rampant misogyny. (laughs) (laughs) No, but Marla's into it. (laughs) Like, do you, do you have that same feeling that I do that? He's just like the absolute worst. Oh no! Yeah, he's grown into a better person. I <laughs> no, I don't. I wouldn't want to know him. Is he maybe a more self-aware person? Is he a person who has a firmer grasp on his life? Yeah, I think so. I think I think this movie. I think the way that David Fincher has made this movie and the way that Jim Ewell's adapted this this story reads to me that this movie is about the danger of falling into any ideology Mm. that basically is going to shame you for your for whatever whoever you are yes and it's the same thing even in in the slightest bit when they're talking about their dads and it's like even like having your dad tell you that you're not good enough Mm. and this this idea of instead of falling into an ideology where you're self-pitying and self-flagellating that you can free yourself and but those actions have to be determined by you and you need to take control of your life and violence and primacy is not the way not the way chuck palaniak hyper masculinity <laughs> is not the way and also buying like buying things and and you know working for a boss that doesn't respect you and you know and denying yourself catharsis essentially mm-hmm. is also not the way in the name of masculinity in the name of masculinity and so i think this is the movie that is trying to exist here and i also feel that way because i think fincher's other movies always have this flair of very edgy very masculine very cool even like gone girl or mm-hmm. the girl of the dragon tattoo which are still like edgy women and women who aren't necessarily PC and, you know, women who are violent, but they, all of his movies are really denounce that hyper-masculine attitude, Mm. you know, that they really ultimately are like the, the contemporary male, when he subscribes to what he is told he's supposed to be, which is either when he goes for this kind of toxic masculinity or when he goes in the complete opposite direction, is unhealthy. It's not better for anyone. And like, you need to, you need to find this healthy middle and be like your own man and not worry about falling into a masculine, like into masculinity and just like accept your reality. And so, I mean, that's what I think this movie is going for. That Maybe is not, even like yeah. transcend that masculinity yeah. and just focus on the humanity. Yes, exactly. It's Fincher is, I, and I don't think he gets his credit. I think he is a very empathetic filmmaker, mm. but his movies are so shiny and so very sh- sharp. And I don't mean like literally just in their precision, but like they have a very like stabby quality. I don't know how else to describe it, but you know. Like stabbing as in stabbing you in the gut or stabby like staccato. It's just like they're, they are violent and they're, 
they they're edgy i guess mm. i don't like to use the word edgy but they have that edge like be careful you're cut yourself on that edge yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and I think because they have that sheen, the substance of them, which always is critical of that masculinity, of that violence, of especially male ego. It's mm. always like male ego. Oh, and do you think that gets overlooked in his films? Absolutely. Often, yeah. I, and, be, because and part of it, I think, is just he is such a stylistic director that it is easy to see the style and not the substance. Mm. Which is what commonly happens with this movie and Tyler Durden. Yeah, because Tyler is stylish. Tyler and Tyler is seductive. And you're I think you're supposed to see, oh, he's seductive. And this is why it's so easy if you're insecure in your masculinity to fall into this kind of terrorism. But instead, people are like, yeah, I do it. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, are stopping such a snowflake. Yeah. <laughs> and so um it's just really interesting to me because in the beginning of the movie, he's such a doof. Like, how could you idolize this guy so much? He's such a stupid doof. Like, I kind of love him in the beginning of the movie. No, I do too. And 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 it's like Tyler, or the narrator loves him because he can be himself around him. Mm-hmm. He can, he can, he openly expresses his insecurities to Tyler. That's true. And Tyler shares those. In a way that he never does to Marla. Yes. And then they don't do that anymore and they replace that with less talk more punch (laughs) so i mean that's how i interpret what this movie is trying to say about the narrator which is that you have to reject this mold that that is really toxic essentially i mean toxic Mm -hmm. masculinity is overused but that is what it is in this movie yeah, I like that. I like that um, interpretation of it a lot. I mean, it, it gels with my mm-hmm. ideology and ideals. Unfortunately, I don't think that's why this movie got praised. No. I think this movie got praised because if you are an insecure man, <laughs> you saw everything that is in this movie and then ignored <laughs> the ending <laughs> where Tyler loses. <laughs> and I'm wondering... Which is like the book ending. Yeah, and I'm Tyler wondering, like, where, where does that disconnect happen? Is that purely, is the onus purely on the audience and misinterpreting that? Or what does Fincher do here that doesn't, I mean, we talked about how Marla doesn't do any favors because she's not really yeah. three-dimensional, but... She's not helping the, yeah. the misogyny in this film. How does this movie either appeal to a man who is very anti-snowflake ideology and who thinks that we're all shit and so we should all act like animals? And how does it also appeal to, like, the edgelord? Or not, it, actually, I'm not talking about edgelords. The first type is an edgelord. How does it appeal to, like, the type of men and women who are, like, who romanticize damage? Which I think is also the other audience for this movie. It, it did. The first time I watched it and kind of in the aftermath of it, I, I like, you can agree with Tyler really easily mm-hmm. in his philosophy. The consumerism's bad. We're all about materialism. We need to just say, fuck it. And destroying credit card debt and going back to zero. Oh that God, seems I like love that. <laughs> it's a really noble cause. Like, <laughs> It's hard not to root for him in some way, but ultimately 
you have to see that, but ignore the fact that this film is critiquing him, that it's very critical of Tyler. It is. And, and maybe it's just so much of that is in subtext. Is it though? I don't know. I, I don't said know. that and I'm it, like, but the narrator actively is like, Tyler's bad. <laughs> so is it just, does it, the movie... It kind of comes back to Joker. You see what you want to see. Well, and maybe part of it is... what you don't like. I mean, you can't change a mind in two hours, however much you wish you could. True. And if you find the type of person the narrator is at the beginning if you find him to be the last type of person you want to be as a man, you are never going to side with him by the end of the movie when he realizes Tyler's wrong. That you're going to be like, no, fuck that. I'm terrified. And maybe that's the thing. The fear is going to, the fear and insecurity of being an inadequate, emasculated man is going to ultimately supersede the criticism of hyper toxic masculinity and you're still going to opt for it because it's going more to push appealing. you into the muscly arms of Brad Pitt, <laughs> the greasy <laughs> oiled up. <laughs> and you're oh. just going to embrace that part of yourself because you're scared of very quickly. We yeah. have to, we have to wrap up this conversation, but really yes. quickly, can we talk about all of the mesh shirts he wears? <laughs> his whole, his whole wardrobe is, utterly 90s and amazing and iconic and flamboyant and, and very, flamboyant and very gay it's when, he, it's when i was like wait are you wearing a mesh t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> um we have talked a lot we've really unpacked this movie thankfully I, I think we have a better handle of this one than we did joker <laughs> joker was undecipherable was it was a riddle within an enigma <laughs> I think this movie has more of it's at odds with itself and yes. and and maybe more because and of the the realities of the things it talks about. We get that with the filmmaker and the author, we get that with the audience and the film, the text itself. Mm-hmm. So even the characters are at odds with it's all it's all a big shit show of intention here. We're all shit. <laughs> <laughs> So Tyler Durden might think we're all shit, but um, we here at How Did This Get Praised, we think you're actually all pretty lovely people. And um, that's why we wanted to take a minute again to talk to you about Circles and Ciphers. Um, Circles and Ciphers is a hip-hop-infused restorative justice organization led by and for young people impacted by violence. Through our base peace circles, education, and direct action, they collectively heal and work to bring about the abolition of the prison industrial complex. It's essentially a fight club if the fight was replaced with hip-hop and anarchy was replaced with abolition uh, basically it takes out all of the toxic things about Fight Club and just tries to replicate the good things um, Circles and Cyphers holds multiple healing circles including a young men's circle as well as a space for young women and femmes of color you can learn more about their programming purchase their magazine or hip-hop postcards and donate by visiting circlesandciphers.org again that is circlesandciphers.org additionally for every listen up to 25 listens this episode we will donate two dollars to circles and ciphers to continue to support the important work that they do now uh we got places to be uh we're very busy so we got to finish this episode so let's go let's do it okay folks we are back we're back we're gonna talk about why did fight club 
get praised? Stefan, why do you think Fight Club got praised? Fight Club seems like something of a game changer of a film. The style, the content, it, it's very direct, very earnest, in your face, edgy. So controversial. It, it seems it's full of witty dialogue. Like the one-liners are great. Um, the performances are all phenomenal. Um, I think Ed Norton's a standout. Brad Pitt is hilariously endearing and yet simultaneously fucking terrifying. It's Tyler Durden. <laughs> it's really like a master performance from him. And then Helena Bonham Carter is everything I want to be and yet everything I don't want to be at the same time. Um, there are some great character moments in this movie too, like Brad Pitt. Uh, playing with nunchucks in the background and Helena Bonham Carter like running up the stairs and flicking a cigarette as she walks off frame <laughs> in the house. It's just, oh, it's so good. Um, yeah, I think, I think ultimately this has become a cult classic because as masculine insecurity has only grown in the last 20 years, so has the identification and, and consumerism. So has the identification with the themes of this movie, although not with necessarily with the criticism. Mm. Um, because Tyler is a really sexy, in, in all meanings of the word, a very sexy escape um, for this, you know, for if you're if you are genuinely frustrated about the expectations. And I think, unfortunately, that's the problem is there is an actual crisis of like masculinity and masculine expectations. Mm. And I do, I think these are also in the interests of feminism because we want to abolish all gender roles. Right. But um, unfortunately it is easier to accept these kind of everyone is shit. So everyone's the same. It's, it's almost socialism, but it's more communism. <laughs> Gay, hyper-masculine communism. Yeah. And it's, that's easier, especially when it's portrayed in such a sleek, really cool, game-changing way with this you know, hot director and hot actor than it is to think about, well, how can you reject that and still live a successful life? Because we don't get to see him live a... That's true. Live a happy, successful life after this. Um, so what do we like about it? I think you spoke a little bit to this, but Brad, Brad Pitt with nunchucks. <laughs> yes, Brad Pitt with nunchucks. Helena Bonham Carter flicking her cigarette. Just seeing how she got... Just making me laugh out loud all the time. <laughs> God love her. <laughs> it, it was really refreshing to see Helena Bonham Carter play a role that wasn't just Bellatrix Lestrange. You know, going back to how everything connects to cats, you know what I always forget? What? That she was in the King's Speech. Yeah. <laughs> it was refreshing then to see her play. I know. I was too, like, honestly. wait, are you just playing like your average woman? <laughs> it's unheard I guess is what, what she was doing before, like especially pre-Fight Club, but and then, you know, Tim Burton. Leave it to a man. <laughs> um. But I really, I like the conclusion that we came to that at the end, the narrator is able to kind of shed and transcend 
the expectations of society and masculinity and grow grow past that. That really appeals to uh, me who doesn't like ideologies of gender at all and doesn't subscribe to them. So I'm sure you feel similarly. I, I agree. I, I do. While I don't always like to watch the movie, I think I do love this movie. Um, and I just don't think I love this movie for the reason many others love it. But mm. as someone who is especially very interested in, in the same way that Cats doesn't exist without every movie before it, you know, <laughs> our current state of uh, everything doesn't exist without masculinity and power and whiteness and kind of how all those things come into play. And so few movies actually show you a exploration of masculinity and actually talks about it and, and deconstructs it. And I really enjoy when movies do. Um, I really enjoy when movies explore male friendships. Um, although this is an unhealthy one, but it still is an exploration of that craving of intimacy and you never get to see men crave intimacy on screen. Um, so I really find this movie refreshing and it's just well-made. I love David Fincher. I really do. Um, and I, this is just, yeah, I, think I want it's to see a really more of movie. his work after this for sure. Yeah. I've not I seen seven. Um, no, we should watch seven, but I, I do know the, the twist of that one. <laughs> I think I do too. What's in the box. Yeah. 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 Then I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, do we think it's worthy of praise? I think so. I think, like you said, it's a really deep exploration of what it means to be a man in modern society and what, what it even means to be a person in modern society and to have that force of masculinity always kind of present. Um, of course, with any sort of deep dive into a subject, you're likely to get people who misinterpret it. Um, the yeah. film could have done more to stop that from happening, but even in that shortcoming even in a shortcoming with, with Marla, um, it's still, I think, very well done. I think it's worth mentioning that Chuck Palahniuk really liked this movie. Yeah. He was really content with the adaptation. And I can't help but think he's one of the people. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, take that as you will. Or are we, are we, are we misreading? misinterpreting it? We could be. I would say I agree it's worthy of praise, but in, in a way, I think it's underrated in the sense that it does not get the praise it is due. It gets a praise that uh, I think is really surface level. Interesting. Um, and not, and also just less interesting. Yeah. Praising is Tyler is like not an interesting take. Praising the rejection of Tyler is interesting to me. Yeah. All right. Let's award some praises Our praises, by the way, is our mascot, yes. Dick Butt. Dick it's butt. a golden dick butt. Um, so, Stefan, out of five, how much praise would you think this movie got? Um, I'm going to say four and a half. Four and a half? Yeah. I'm it's the say... dude classic. It's every guy's must-watch guy movie. That's fair. I was going to say three and a half, but that's perhaps because I have run in less dude circles. Um <laughs> So certainly I don't hear about this movie, especially now. I feel like I heard about it a lot more as a teenager, mm. which maybe I heard this, about it a lot in college. Maybe this speaks to, I mean, you even said this movie was really popular with men under 25 and maybe it's also speaks to, there's a certain type of immaturity that this also yeah. is appealing to. Oh, for um, sure. 
it's a three and a half, four and a half. I'll say a solid four. Yeah. Right in the middle there. Cool. And how much praise do you think it deserves? I'm going to give it a four. I'm going to give it a four as well. I think it's a very good movie. Not my favorite movie of all time, but really good. And a movie I'll probably return to again at some yeah. point. I really enjoyed it um, after the repeating watches and getting to dissect it a little. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, we did good. We did good. We did good. And uh, I, hopefully this conversation was just a lot more coherent than Joker. It felt a lot more coherent than Joker. <laughs> I didn't want to lose my mind having this conversation. Where is my mind? So naturally, uh, we're going to follow this up with a David Lynch conversation. Yeah, <laughs> David. Uh, oh, so David. after our Fight Club mini-sode, we are going to be talking about going in a di- very different direction of praise, I would say. And we're going to be talking about David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Yeah. Which I I might have to rewatch that one a few times to yeah. <laughs> get into. Um, we have both seen it before, so this will be an a interesting conversation as we'll both be revisiting this. We're both David Lynch, Lynch fans, but I think uh, this is probably regarded as his best movie or one of it's his two either best movies, that or Mahal and drive, drive. Uh, and certainly possibly regarded as his most accessible for sure so we're going to get into that and we're going to get into all the wacky shenanigans of blue velvet until then wait i'm i have so many david lynchian things planned there's <laughs> games oh, no. we might read some tm stuff guys it's going to be great <laughs> Well, until then, I look forward to it, Stefan. Uh, follow us at praise underscore pod on Instagram mm-hmm. and Twitter. Praise and pod. Until then, uh, praise responsibly. Yes. You know how I know that you're gay?